Morning, everybody, and welcome to Strategy Cafe uh, with me, Nick Mayhew, uh, founder and managing director of Alembic Strategy. Your shot of uh, leadership inspiration from, from us this morning. Um, I'm delighted to have so many new subscribers uh, to the cafe this month. Uh, this is our monthly leadership magazine, and we try and pick up interesting topics. We've certainly had some fantastic leaders to interview and sort of get hold of their stories and their tips. And today's no exception. I'm completely delighted to be here with Don Randall, who I'm going to introduce in a, in a minute, who is just an exceptional guy and very generous to give us his time this morning uh, for what I hope will be an absolutely fascinating uh, cafe for the next 20 minutes. So our, our hope is that you find these sessions useful and inspirational uh, for your own leadership challenges. Um, and that kind of just tells you a little bit about us. Uh, we're a strategy company, so we help businesses formulate new tra uh, strategies for you know pretty much any challenge that they might be facing uh, in the marketplace. The things that are stretching you and your colleagues as leaders, we, we're pretty good at, at helping you out with uh, and offer a quite wide range of support, including M&A, support for the board, uh, strategic thinking, strategic training, coaching amongst other, amongst other things, there's different ways to try and tackle your issues. Cafe is a really nice way to connect with you all and give you a feel for what we're like, who we are. And um, we also do it to share our thinking and hope that that's useful for you. Very pleased, as always, to hear your suggestions uh, for subjects you'd like us to cover, for improvements you'd like to see. There's a little survey comes out from GoToWebinar at the end. Uh, please fill that in and send it back to us. Really keen to hear from you for other inspirational leaders that you'd like us to interview, because that's kind of the lifeblood of the Strategy Cafe. We do that most times. And don't forget that um, during this morning's webinar, you can ask Don questions. Uh, if you look on your panel, you should see a question area. Everyone will remain muted throughout uh, because there's too many voices on, unfortunately, to have you all on. Lovely that that would be. But there are uh, there's a question area. So um, feel free to fire your questions for me or for Don uh, into the question area, and we'll pick them up later. The, the plan is to talk to Don through until about 10.2. Uh, I don't know quite how we're going to cram his career into that short period of time. We certainly won't be doing it justice, but um, it should be really fascinating. Um, I'm going to then wrap up together with Don with some sort of headline notes about situational leadership and uh, strategic thinking. Uh, and then we've got an opportunity for Q&A uh, sort of towards uh, the top of the hour. So um, stay around for, for that. and. Hopefully, we'll be able to field some of your questions as as we go. So, uh, without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, a fantastic gentleman and our, our leader interviewee today, Don. Uh, Don, um, over to you. Please say hello and introduce yourself. Sorry, kind Nick, and um, <clears throat> very humbling. Thank you very much, and to everybody. Uh online listening and uh, if I may say Nick I, I've actually quoted you and the company several times since we since we met um, because I think what happens sometimes we, we don't look in the mirror at ourselves um, in the way that you do and uh, it's quite uh, refreshing and if not a little bit surprising when people point out what we think are obvious ways we go about stuff and someone identifies it so thank you for that very briefly um, 
uh, thanks for the nice picture. Um, I think that's why I call my Daniel Craig picture, but uh, I don't actually look like him. Um, so I joined the City of London Cadets in 1967. Um, we didn't have career development in 1967 as we do at schools and educational platforms now. And my two scout leaders were policemen. One was the City of London, one was the Met. Um, the City of London replied quicker. In fact, I'd actually joined the City of London Cadets in September 67 before the Metropolitan Police had even replied. So I don't think much has changed there or criticism to the Met, but it's a big machine, it works slower. Um, uh, promoted sergeant in the early 70s, uniform sergeant. But those who were around at that time may remember that Robert Mark was commissioner of the Met and there was a, a big push to rid policing of corruption. Um, and there was a big uh, investigation called Operation Countryman. And the then commissioner, Peter Marshall, um, appointed me as a detective sergeant, which was a uh, I think I was only one of two ever to go straight from a uniform supervisory rank into the what was then the CID. And the most fascinating 18 months at Snow Hill. Um, I was then appointed detective inspector I think, around early eight, 1980 and attached to the fraud squad, which was quite uh, an interesting period. It was a siloed uh, organisation at that time. Um, did a couple of spells back in uniform in various positions of divisional command and operational command and then was detective superintendent. Um, I, I say this because it, I think it, it, it was good at the time. I think I was the youngest ever detective superintendent in the city police at the age of 38. Um, stayed in the fraud squad till 93. Uh, then had, we had the Samaria Acts and Bishop Craig Bombs, which we might talk about shortly. I left in 1990, late 95, early 96, um, um, probably with majoring in fraud, counter-terrorism, investigation, and partnership. Had 14 wonderful years at JP Morgan, subsequently JP Morgan Chase as the International Director of Security. Um, that's when we created Project Griffin, which we can talk about. Um, and uh, a, a little heart attack, there was a little heart attack in 1987. Um, so I'm, I'm now sort of semi-bionic with five stents and one third of my heart muscle doesn't work, but I'm in good form for those who know me. Uh, nothing changes in my life. So in 2008, I became the director of security of, uh, at, um, at uh, the Bank of England, a privileged position, uh, again, to create some change management. And then when um, Mark Carney arrived in July 2013, he, he wanted to create a information security division at the bank. And I think he asked me to do it. Um, <laughs> I did it. It was, a, it was a very strong, we would like you to do this. I, I laugh about this and say, well, it's either you do it or you give us a P45. And I decided to do it. But interestingly enough, from a fundamental detective with little or no um, technical skills, I think I still had a Nokia, one of the original Nokia phones at that time, um, to become the first ever CISO. Some called it CISO. I call it CISO. Um, and with two years to do it, because I was 63 years of age and I intended to do something different at the age of 65. Um, we did it, fantastic team. If anybody wants to talk about how to create a information security division, I can fully, I can do it from a soup to nuts, as the Americans would say. Um, and uh, then once I was 65, I decided to, um, I actually stayed on as an advisor to the Bank of England for 18 months. Uh, but then created my own company and I now, um, I like the word advise, Nick, as opposed to consult. I think consult tends to send the wrong message, whereas advisory is more friendly, more engaging. And advice, you can take it or leave it. Whereas consultancy, I tend to think and give a package and say, well, there it is, that's it. So I'm, I'm privileged to uh, advise uh, nine various companies uh, across the globe. So that's my, my short career, Nick. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, what a 
stellar career it's uh, an amazing an amazing time i i love this and i realized we've got this wrong um because this isn't city of london police is it but uh, we were just chatting beforehand over coffee about the fact that when you started i wasn't born uh, it's kind of quite scary for me um but um uh, just tell us a little bit about what life was like in the early early years in the city of london police and uh, why this is the wrong picture yeah, the City of London Police, and I know I'm slightly biased, you know, it's, they, they, they joke with me that if, if everybody wants me to go to the West End, I have to take a passport because I'm just in the square mile. <laughs> For the City of London Police in 1969, we, it's quite interesting, we didn't have radios uh, at that time, but just a little uh, chronology here. When we launched the Computer Misuse Act, I think it was 1990, um, and I, was, I think I was on radio and television, the piece of legislation that is still the primary piece of legislation for cyber, um, we didn't even have desktop computers in those days, so we're launching legislation. So even in that 23 years, or 24 years from joining, but we didn't have radios in 1969. Yeah. Um, the Pi Pocket phones actually came out in 1970. Um, oh, really? You know, and uh, the, the, the TARDISes, the police boxes, were the only means of communication. You, you'd go out on a beat on night duty, and if there was a, an incident, alarm, or, or anything, the, the box would flash. And then you'd go along and pick up the phone and they'd say, go to a 60 tube side where an alarm is ringing. And that was the communication vehicle. So if we look at, you know, where we've gone on and it's a sad day today with the anniversary, if that's the right word, of PC Palmer's killing at Westminster, where, you know, we're, we're different times, you know, we, we didn't wear... Uh, stab proof vests in those days. We wore our uniform. Our uniform was more dressed and functional. Um, it, it was a it was a, a, a start change. And if you go back, I think the television series Heartbeat pretty much reflects that era of policing. If you remember that series, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, it's this sort of phase. We got to the 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 Bishopsgate bomb in just a sec, and I'm really keen to talk about that as sort of situational leadership. But this sort of phase led you up. Uh, to being uh, in the fraud squad and all the way up to detective sergeant and then detective inspector, um, etc. But um, I believe, uh, so one of the things you talked about when we were chatting about the early days was uh, you'd find that you sort of turned up for everything. It was sort of always first on the scene. Um, and after a while that get, led you to a realisation about yourself. Maybe talk about that a little bit, about this early early phase of your career, being first on the scene. Yeah, it, 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 and, and that was all the way through my career, but I didn't do it. With, it was just you know, my, my, my mother who very, was a very important person in my life, as, as most mothers are to, to their sons and daughters. I always said, if, if someone pays you money, whether it's Bob a job or you're doing the butcher's round or the paper round, you do absolute maximum value. You know, you, you put the paper through the door. You don't just leave it on the doorstep. You know, that, that was always my... I guess my ideology, and uh, and I've, I've still just had to die. I don't turn any challenges down, but I don't see them as challenges, Nick. So whether it be a road traffic accident, a drunk, or uh, a criminal scene, or we end up chasing a, uh, a felon, old-fashioned word that, down the road, that's what you did. And in the early days, I thought, where's everybody else, you know? And then once you were on the scene, everybody else turned up. And, uh, and you think, okay. And of course, their reasoning, Nick, was, uh, well, you know, first on scene writes a report. And they didn't want to write the report, but as as I matured, it, it actually you go through generations, and and there were some more mature police officers in 1969 who who couldn't deal with the policing reality of 1969 through the 70s and 80s, and the reason they weren't turning up was that 
they, they weren't confident to deal with those situations. And once someone was at the scene, they were happy for them to be, to be guided and to be led. But to me, it was natural. And, and I think it's a very caring thing to understand that we, you know, some people can deal with uh, arrests and some people are good at one thing and some people are good at others, but having that mutual respect. But yeah, I was always first on scene and I don't tell a lot of people about this, but I actually rode the motorcycles for a year. Um, it's a piece of my career I keep quiet because I make a laugh of it. But my my partner then was a wonderful man called Brian Renault, and we went to everything. And you know, I can remember the, the Tower of London bombing in 1973. I think it was. We were we were actually just booking off duty at about 20 past two. The call came out, and we were first on scene at the towers. I can remember our call signs, Nick: three five and three nine. Um, yeah. So that, that's how we did it. And I, 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 I never look at myself in that way. I just think, it, as mum said, you're paid to do a job, do it and do it well to the best I of your ability. I think it's so fascinating. I mean, it's a really great uh, sort of mentoring lesson out to uh, budding leaders out there to, um, you know, push for that opportunity. And to just, you know, I think that what comes across to me is the natural enthusiasm to sort of soak up the event. And I think... I mean, most of us not being in the forces would, um, me certainly, maybe I can't speak for everybody else, but I'd find that whole idea of sort of running into trouble terrifying. I'm not sure how I'd respond. Don't think I could do that, but, um, you know, I've not been challenged like that, but I don't know, but I, I'd find it terrifying. Um, on the other hand, just thinking across different leadership aspects, you know, one of the things I think that does set out good leaders is the um, enjoyment of the challenge of the leadership in their context. And actually finding it maybe less stressful, more fun, just to um, to leap into something more difficult. Uh, I think it does mark out people uh, for higher levels of leadership because you get that experience and exposure. Um, I, I know that the key part of this part of your career was sort of getting rid of um, fraud and corruption in the forces. I want to come on to St Mary Acts, but just as we transition, I'm going to put the next slide up, but maybe just transitioning into this next one. Um, uh, maybe just a quick comment on that. On um, you know, I remember you saying they were great, great policemen, but unfortunately, they're just also corrupt. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know I, I, the problem with corruption on a global basis, whether it be in policing or this or whatever, you, you actually will never rid the world of corruption. Although there's been massive steps forward in legislation, understanding, practice, but you have to deal with it. You know, the sadness back in the days of those, those, those corrupt police officers and the the, the the degrees and, and, and facets of corruption is that many of the detectives were first-class detectives. They were, they were excellent detectives. Their detective yeah. skills were phenomenal. Um, yeah. But they had this streak of corruption in them, which was very, very sad and had to be dealt with. So you had to, you had to try and extrapolate from those very good detectives, from the detective skills, and, and separate those. You know, some of them never got evidence discovered or dealt with, but there was always a suspicion of that. So, you know, I'm not saying every bad is good, but there were some very good people there. and It's an understanding. And and the other thing, Nick, if I may, just one minute, is when when I went back uh, in 1988 uh, to run the operational side of the Hold Squad, um, my colleague John Todd went to the Serious Fraud Office and I did the operational side. You know, the commissioner's direction to me was change it. <laughs> I don't know, and you're going to, any more than that, he said, change it, do what you do well. And what we did, Nick, in that, and this is what I think comes into Bishopsgate as well, that we, 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 we stopped the silo approach to fraud investigation. So we had a shipping fraud expert, a banking fraud expert, an insurance fraud expert. We made all the detectives omni-competent to deal with any type of fraudulent activity as they came in. Yes, you, you always get specialization as it matures, 
but that was quite a revolutionary step. And we had a 1988, if you, you know, Mark Polin is now the chief constable of uh, North Wales, was one of my detective sergeants. And we had a phenomenal good time in uh, 88 through to 93. We, we, I think we revolutionized the way fraud investigation was carried out and it still carries out now. And of course, the City of London Police is the, the lead uh, repository for fraud and cybercrime on a national basis. So, um, I think I think it's very interesting. It's really interesting. Uh, just going back onto the fraud, uh, fraud corruption thing a little bit, and uh, the changes there is sort of inspirational. But the um, interesting thing about the difficulty of handling some of the blurred lines uh, that happen, and uh, you know that need for a deep personal ethic and self-discipline uh, when you have a position of authority, which we kind of hear about across the world today, and people not not holding that line, uh, not breaching it, maybe pretty good at what they do, but nevertheless, they've they've crossed the line somewhere. It's kind of interesting to me about self-leadership, which I think is a key part of being a great leader, is uh, keeping yourself in, in check and uh, honoring the position, the office that you have, as opposed to uh, personalizing it and saying it's about me um, and maybe breaching some of the rules. I think it's interesting. That leads us to this. I mean, so I'm in, in a way, I think, um, to the point where you were saying that you happen to be you happened to be in the office when the news came in about the Bishopsgate bomb. So tell us about tell us about this horrific day. Yeah, that was uh, Saturday. Actually, it's the 25th anniversary. If again, anniversary is the right word. I can't find the right word. The 25th anniversary of the Bishopsgate bomb this uh, this coming Easter, um, the 24th of April. I always joke, Nick, and say I was in my office at like nine o'clock in the morning, and I, I, I make a joke and say I, I might be because I'm dedicated. It might be because I haven't done my job during the week and I'm catching up and I leave it open to comment. But uh, I remember, the, the, and we did call them lady inspectors in those days, Anne Reese came down, sadly she's not with us anymore, and she said, we've got a problem, sir. And I said, yeah, and I'm reading the problem. In those days we had telex, Nick. It was, we didn't have computers or anything else. I think the fax machine, they just sort of come in. And I said, no, I'm reading the telex. He said, no, sir, we have the problem. And I, so I went up to the control room, which was then on the fourth floor, and there it was, sitting in Bishopsgate, this this lorry, and and the the calls are coming in. You know, there's a there's a you know from the uh, proponents of the, the the crime, and we actually created Nick. What was the so I don't, we were I was jeans and t-shirt, and we had very Saturday morning. Uh, the bombs sitting on what on top of the probably one of the most complex railway networks in 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 the world, if and definitely within this country. You've got Fenchurch Street, Liverpool Street, you've got the undergrounds, you've got everything there. And we, the year before at St. Mary Axe, we created a, a policy of evacuation. Evacuation being go to the basement. Most of the modern buildings will sustain the vortex effect, but we never tested it. And I remember yeah. one of the sergeants turning around and uh, he said, we've got HSBC on the phone. Ian Dermott, sadly, he's no longer with us. Um, and he said, there, there's 70 people. What do I do with them? And I, I said, put them in the basement. And he goes, they haven't got a basement. I said, every building in the city of London has got a basement. Put them in the basement. I perhaps wasn't quite as polite in my language to do that. And they went in the basement. And you will recall, all of those, they, they were a bit dusty when they came out. They had ringing in their ears. Um, and the only person who sadly got injured, other than the, the photographer who died, was the security guard who was chaperoning everybody downstairs and didn't chaperone himself downstairs. And uh, one of my critical decisions was we had two area cars, Alpha 7 and Alpha 8. And behind the vehicle, I think it was the Kuwaiti Bank, which was next to St. Ethelberg's. I think the church had got destroyed, but now rebuilt. The, I saw three people walk out. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, so I, 
sent the area car down the road and down St. Mary Axe with their loud hailer saying, stay in the building, stay in the building. And you know and there's a bomb there, right? Well, yeah, and at 10.24, bang. Yeah. yeah, and the lights, the lights dipped in the control room at Wood Street, and all oh, the, the noise, the alarms went. I thought, oh my, my goodness, I've sent the car into the death zone, um, wow. and I've never been so relieved that it came we, on, on the CCTV. You see it coming out of St Mary's, turning into Leadenhall Street. But the, the heroics of those people and the the, the, the military, and um, and it went off. And sadly, as you know, one one person unfortunately died, but. That was considerably less than died the year before at St Mary Axe. And, and then we move into recovery mode. And I think it's a well-known fact, Nick, that five tons of glass fell out of the sky that, that, that morning. Right. Um, we can see it here on the picture. You can see there's no glass in those windows. No, no, no. no. And uh, then we go into, into recovery. And, of course, we didn't know if this was a singular activity or multiple activities. And, and then, the, then the machine starts to work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just such an incredible uh, example of the need to lead the situation. I'll come on and talk about that in a little bit, but uh, just really interesting. So we must hear about Project Griffin, which I think is this next one. So um, so we're moving on a, a ways here, but um, tell us about uh, Project Griffin. Tell us about the idea, how the strategy for this came about, and really keen to hear how about uh, you made this a, a global phenomenon. Okay, uh, and the picture is of myself, uh, the former commissioner Adrian Leppard and John McClune, who, who's still at JP Morgan. He joined JP Morgan when he was 16, and forgive me, John, I think John's in his early 60s now. He's been there about 50 years plus, um, and ran the control room for us when he got the award. So when I left British Policing, I was very keen to, to unite the public and private sectors. And my, 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 my vision was always that the, the sergeant or muster the briefing sergeant on the Friday night, once he'd briefed the constables to go out and do their duty, if he could only brief the private sector guards. And that was always what I wanted to happen. It, you know, we're talking 1996, it's not that far back, but um, it's a long way back. And so slowly waste away. And then, then we, of course, had 9-11. And there was a wonderful man, and uh, Sir David Vanessa, as he is now, a, a, a true friend and, and business partner of mine. We were having a, a modest function at J.P. Morgan and, so David, as he now is, was sitting next to me, and I said, David, 9-11, 9-11 changed the world. It transformed the world from a counter-terrorist perspective and awareness factor. And I said, David, we've got 120,000 police officers, and we've got 320,000 security guards. Why don't we bring the two together? Um, and David went, okay. And David, at that time, was Assistant Commissioner of Special Operations in the Met, and a, and a phenomenal reach. And he said, I like that. And the City of London Police is a very useful, unique force. You can make things happen. So we had AXO's endorsement. And David did what David does. Well, it's a fun. I'll endorse it, Don. You make it happen. And we did. And we have three strands to Griffin, which still stand today. The first one is the guards are, are, are made aware, educated in, in, the, in the realms of terrorism that they never were before, including what devices are, what's happening. The second one is information exchange. We share information. And the third one, which is always a little bit debatable, was cordon support should an incident occur or something happen. That one been flexed. So we created Project Griffin. We trialled it in September 2003, and we went live in April 2004. Um, it, it, it stood us well. Um, it's a global global position now. It's in uh, India, Singapore, Australia, South Africa, uh, America, in New York. 
the people online would have heard of Shield, Shield's Project Griffin. Uh, Ray Kelly, the then commissioner, said, Don, I think it's a fantastic idea, but I'm going to say I invented it and I'm going to change the name and, and you weren't here. And those who ever see me, but he, he gave me a pair of commissioner's cufflinks. I said, but Ray, I'm not here. He goes, you got them on another time. Um, and it's in America, in Vancouver. The deputy chief of Vancouver adopted it 10, 12 years ago. It was in the Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And Griffin is a, is a global and is seen as, I think it's quoted four times in Hansard, Nick, as the best example of public-private partnership within British policing and law enforcement on a global basis. I think it's just such a fantastic thing. Uh, folks, if you're out there listening, um, there's a huge opportunity for questions here, I'm sure. So look at the questions area and um, send us some questions. Um, I'm just going to sort of sum up uh, some of the things that I kind of pick out from that. And thank you very much, Don, for the um, talk through your career and some of the key highlights there, which is really fascinating stuff. Um, and Don, feel free to sort of chip in. So just things that I picked out, and we're talking about situational leadership. Uh, I think it's really hard. It's probably one of the hardest things. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has struggled this last week. Uh, he's leader of one of the global giants in technology. He has not got to the front of the situation over the um, stuff on the news about manipulating electoral results with Facebook data. So I think it's really hard. Uh, you need to be really proactive and lead from the front. So it's that whole thing of when a situation arises, getting ahead of it. So what that does, I think, is if you do get ahead of it, you tend to get ahead of other people. Um, and um, one of the things that's really needed is um, a, uh, um, a really clear command, I think, of the detail, the operational detail, because things are unfolding, and also a clear sense of the big picture. And for me, that can come from experience. Um, many, many years experience of dealing with difficult situations will give you that sense of what's the big picture, what are my principles, what must I get right, what must I not do, just naturally have that through experience. But the other way to get that is to really work on it with your team, to really be clear about those things and have that set out in your plan so that when the situation arises, you don't have to explain what's needed so much to the rest of the leadership team. They just know because the principles are already understood. So I think getting that picture clear up front really helps with decision making, but it can come from experience. You've got to stay at a high level and you've really got to pay attention to information as it arises. I'm really reminded of Montgomery's um, uh, stories about um, the El Alamein campaign where as the battle unfolded and there was a lot of difficulty in the first few days he stayed in his caravan and just took intelligence reports and it wasn't until he heard what he needed to hear which was about a breakthrough in the north that he made his first key strategic decision which was to switch the troops to the north part of the battlefield. So staying on the information as it arises and reacting is so important to have those clear information flows coming through. There's two things there. I think one, one is when you drive some of these initiatives and, and people still do this today, which but they what's what's his motivation? What's he trying to achieve? And and I've spent a lot of my time, Nick, actually saying I just this is my community spirit, it's what I believe in. It's 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 part of my DNA. And you know, in the early days people say, Oh, you're just trying to do this because he wants to improve his bonus at JP Morgan or something like that. And and then some people do get envious is the wrong word, but they it wasn't their idea, so they're reluctant to adopt it and and you, you, know, you always have two camps. That doesn't that doesn't trouble us really, although it subconsciously occasionally it tweaks in the back of your mind. Um, 
But the other thing I think, Nick, is, is understanding the consequence of what you're dealing with, you know, the, the yeah. importance of what you're dealing with. And if I just give you one very quick example, once I, I did a very small spell in the, in the process office as a, a uniform sergeant, where there was a backlog of work. And quite frankly, the process was like from a defective tire to a prosecution for death by dangerous. Now, if you didn't get the summons for detected, a defective tire in six months, who really cares, yeah? But if you mess up the prosecution for a death by dangerous driving where a person's died and a family are bereaved, and it's a real, so you just prioritize that and say, well, the death by dangerous has to be done. If by virtue of focusing on that, we end up missing a few defective tires or a couple of brake lights that don't work, who really cares? I know it's always a balance, but I've always worked on the consequence and what is the consequence, what is the importance, what is the relative value which actually leads you to a position of leadership and direction and, and resourcing. It's probably an oversimplification, but perhaps not I don't think time. so. I don't think so. I think that's kind of what I'm saying. I think you've got you've, you've captured it beautifully, that balance between detail and the big picture. And the key thing about the big picture is understanding how to prioritize. So what is the priority matter? And in, you know, in roles like yours, it's, uh, you know, the pressure is clearly there because if somebody dies, you know, the, the consequence is just absolutely grim in business. You know, that's rare. You know, it can happen, but it's very, very rare. But the consequence for business, uh, more civil, can be very significant. And it's understanding the likely outcome and the priority is the big picture stuff. Um, and knowing which bits of detail to pick, you know, it's that it's the balance between two. So I think you've really captured it. And it does feed into this next slide, which um, picks up from the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, which is about the deep uh, instinct that comes from many, many years of experience. And um, he talks about people being able to just tell in a microsecond if something is a fraud or not a fraud just by the look of it. Something they can almost smell that it's wrong. Um, and that confidence in yourself, that, that, that gut that you're right, I think that does come from experience. It comes from experience in the field, seeing it many, many times, seeing it under pressure. And after a while, that builds up in something special, maybe an emergent capability to, to sort of smell the wrong or to know the priority. Um, so based on that years of experience, it's about just knowing, uh, which I think is what you're talking about, just know how to, uh, we've got some great questions coming through. Uh, so people stay around. We've got some good questions here as well. So yeah. we'll pick them up in a second. Yeah, Sorry, I agree with what you just said, and uh, I think that blink the Gladwell is uh, is one that I'm not I'm not an avid reader, but I, I promise you, Nick, I will. Ah, there's a really interesting example in there of um, uh, from policing in America of it going wrong when people misread uh, and someone got shot because they misread. But you know, it's just so how it can go wrong sometimes. Just moving on a little bit to strategic thinking and change leadership, um, I really love that, uh, the experience, the insights and the proactivity that leads someone like Don to say, do you know what, we should do this, it's obvious we should do this. I, I'd like to say there's an emotional content to that, so an excitement about what could be done to improve things, an excitement and emotion about the possibility that something that we could do together, I've seen an opportunity, I've seen how to connect things. So I would describe that as a sort of gain orientation or a growth mindset, um, seeing seeing an, a huge opportunity which could easily be done. And it's that that visual, that vision thing of seeing the connections, the combined strengths, uh, the insight. We know what is the emergent strength of putting the police and the security forces together? You know, how could we do that? How would that improve our, communi our community? I just think that's really interesting. 
Um, and then change leadership, just leading on from that. So you've had the vision, you've seen the opportunity, but now you've got to lead it. So it's that willingness again to be first up, to step into the fray, to lead the situation and taking it right back from um, call sign 35, I think I heard, uh, on the motorbike down at the bridge. Um, and here we are, you know, many years later with JP Morgan, a willingness still to, to lead and to promote others. And that strength of belief, you know, my attitude about this, I want to see this happen, I want to lead this, I want to see this done, uh, working with other people who are significant to make this happen and breaking through those perceived difficulties to sort of politically lead something. And that's really, to me, the essence of, of strategic leadership. It's that game mindset, it's seeing the, seeing, seeing the opportunity, creating the buy-in to the plan and then getting on the front foot and politically leading it through until you get something like this, which is a global response uh, to counter-terrorism. I just think it's an amazing, amazing story from Don. So thank you very much. And I think one of the professional tricks, Nick, if I, if I may, and someone pointed this out to me in 1986, another good colleague and friend of mine, Chris Duggan, and the use of the word we as opposed to the use of the word I, it's, it's, an all, it's a must, massively enabling two-letter word and it's really significant, the use of, and, and if, any, if anybody ever hears me say, oh, I just correct me, because I do fundamentally believe in the we, and the we is the embracing, and it's an important, simple word, but it can make such a change. That's great. I um, uh, So uh, quite interesting this morning, I've had a text in from, um, from um, Rick Manfield, who's uh, CEO of the uh, Securities Institute, who's at an expo listening in, um, and uh, so Rick says, um, you know, what tips do you have, Don, for getting stakeholder buy-in to a project like that? Okay. Um, the okay, you mean Project Griffin? How to get it in the early yeah. days? What we did on yeah. Griffin in the early days, we went to we needed we needed a modest sum of money, um, so we went to the the uh, the ten the ten predominant security companies in the United Kingdom and said, would you contribute to this? Uh, would you participate in this? Um, the margins on security guarding are very small and, and there was a concern about resource um, resourcing and, and that adding to the cost and, and therefore adding to the, 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 the reducing the margin. So one of the tricks we did on Griffin, and it's quite a good way to reverse it around, is that we the, the cost for the guards attending the awareness day was borne by the, the end user. So we at JP Morgan paid for the absence of the guards to do the awareness training. So I think, uh, and I'm very, very impressed with what uh, Rick's done since he's taken up that CEO job at the Institute. So well done, Rick. The, the, and that's not a patronizer, it's a real statement, is to, is to look, at all the, look at all the elements of what you're trying to achieve. You need a champion. You, you know, we haven't talked about cross-sector safety and communications, but we're rolling out across the country. You need a champion, you need a leader. You know, Mark Duffy in, in East, we've got David Ward in the South, we've got Karen Ramirez in the Southwest, and we've got Andrew Nichols in the Midlands at the moment. They're champions, they need to lead, they need to be equally inspirational. So my, my view is, look at what the gains are, look at what the downsides, you've got to look at what the downsides are. If you look at the downsides and you can back those off, then you're actually, you, you know, it's almost like, well, how can we allow the guards to be away for six hours? Who's going to pay for that? Well, it's a problem. It's a problem that could, could falter that project. So I just think look at things in the round would be my answer, Nick. And, and more importantly, focus on the, the downsides first, because you, if you cover those off, the challenges are less, but you, everybody needs a champion and the, the champion will be your key to the door.
I, I agree with that. Um, it's a fantastic thing about and finding the champions for different aspects of it, people with the energy enthusiasm to sort of create that momentum for you. It's a great answer, really good answer. So a lovely question here from Peter Lavery uh, asking, given your background within the City of London Police and learning from corporate security with JP Morgan and then the Bank of England, what advice uh, would you give to people from the security profession who are keen to progress in security? Okay, I, and Peter's a close friend of mine, and uh, uh, and we travel together quite a lot. Um, the I think the thing is to is to get the partnership, you know, to get the the, the fair partnership. And and I've said this before, uh, Nick, that you've got to get the police talking to the police, and you've got to get the public, the private talking to the private, and then you've got to get the private talking to the public. It, it's a bit of a bit of a mouthful, but you know, and, and there's a lot we can do. Um, you know, I don't buy the argument that we pay our taxes and therefore the, the, the police or law enforcement agency should be doing this. We, we live in difficult, stressful times where resources and finances are restricted. And the more we can do to harmonize that and add value to it. And sometimes, you know, the, the value is not purely monetary, Nick. It, it's, it's time and effort. Yeah? It's giving your, your time or giving the resources or the endorsement of your company to actually be supportive of the law enforcement needs. And so <clears throat> Peter, Peter knows I'm passionate about partnership and harmonization, but that's what I would suggest that, you know, um, you know, if we look at the, the cyber issues these days, and you know, there's highly qualified um, uh, cyber uh, technicians out there. And why don't we, why they, why they could be, they become special constables with a dedicated skill within the fraud or cyber world, or they could become volunteers and they, you know, get, they're not going to wear the uniform, they're not taking police people's jobs away, but they're just actually working closer together. And I think that's where, that's where great advances are, both from individuals, from corporates, and from smaller companies. And you don't have to be a JP Morgan to have impacts. You, you can be a two-person small business and add more value than sometimes the bigger corporates. That's my view, Nick. Uh, wonderful answers um, and thank you very much for your generosity and just keeping an eye on the time with questions I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up now but um, if people want to send in more questions I'll pass them through to you Don and maybe you can um, fill them but thank you for really insightful absolutely amazing um, interview this morning I really thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and look forward to meeting you again and carrying on the chat um, great, great comments, and I think really, really helpful for people listening, um, both about the security in, in, uh, industry, but also just about uh, just about leadership at the at the highest level, kind of at the top, at toughest kind of edge. Really interesting. We ha we haven't even covered the Bank of England. There's a few questions in about that. It's almost like uh, we need to do about seven of these, I think, to sort of really get, dig into it. But uh, but really good. So um, thank you, everybody. Um, I hope you have a great day. Um, just. One question from me out to all of you is what's the one thing? You're going to take one thing away from today. What's the one thing that you've heard from Don about your own leadership or your colleagues' leadership? What's the one thing that you're going to take away from today and, and uh, put into practice yourself? Um, so uh, if you like today's webinar, uh, check out our past events page, www.alembicstrategy.com. Get involved and then look for the past events uh, area. You'll see this webinar up there shortly. Actually, everything now is on a link to our YouTube channel, which is getting increasingly popular. And you'll see there's loads of our past events up there. We've got some cut down things on there so you can listen to a little bit of a tip for a couple of minutes. Some great stuff there from, from Nick Easter. 
It's a really fantastic uh, webinar uh, on breathing life into your brand by um, Nikki Fuchs from Office Space in Town. Uh, loads of things, including the ones up on this slide. So um, go and have a listen. I mean, all of them are inspirational. Uh, it's pretty much like a book up there on best tips in leadership already. So just totally proud of that resource. So go and have a look at our YouTube channel. It's a little bit clunky in terms of the um, sort of technical competencies, but I hope you forgive us for that. But the content, I think, is really amazing. Um, and um, just so that you're aware, um, get in touch about this. Don uh, and Giles uh, Fuchs uh, and Nikki from um, Office Space in Town uh, have very kindly agreed to come and keynote for us on some of this. So we've decided our next London Leaders Forum, which is the 23rd of May, we're going to extend it to an open conference. Uh, we're going to run a whole day's conference uh, at St Dunstan's Hill, and then we'll have um, dinner and networking in the evening overlooking HMS Belfast, uh, just on the north bank of the Thames, uh, down, down at Lower Thames Street, just an absolutely beautiful spot. Um, and a whole day on developing your own strategic thinking, your situational leadership, really trying to understand what growth mindset means. Fantastic day full of top tips on how you can develop that with yourself and your team. So get in touch about the 23rd of May uh, and come along to our, our Leaders Conference, our London Leaders Conference. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the Get Involved page too. I hope you've enjoyed it today. Thank you very much for sticking with us through until just after 10 past nine. Been an absolutely fantastic seminar this morning. Thank you very much, Don, again, for coming on board and uh, for getting us your thoughts. Well, thanks very much for the and opportunity, Nick. I do, I do appreciate it. Thank you very much.